Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. My first day of work at Saturday Night Live was supposed to be on September 11th, uh, 2001. Everything changed in that moment, but it was hard to know what the repercussions would be. How do you make a joke ever again now? They need to, to watch what they say, watch what they do. A comedian's natural response is to try to find humor, even in the darkest of situations. You need something to burst the tension in the room, and that's what comedy is supposed to do. Normalcy, right? People need to laugh again. They don't get to cancel our dumb sketch show. The tone and goals of The Daily Show was always to be the court jester, who was basically going, the emperor has no clothes. Social criticism, that's part of what comics do. Part of what comedy does is it says, yes, this is terrible, but you can laugh about it. It's 20 years on for some people. It's still now too soon. Too soon. Too soon, too soon. Too soon, too soon. Time plus tragedy equals comedy, which I get. You know, you certainly couldn't make Holocaust jokes till at least 47. So when is it okay, if ever, for comedians to tell jokes about sensitive national topics say, Vietnam or 9-11. And especially if you happen to be Middle Eastern Americans, what with the post-9-11 Islamophobia that never seems to go away. Jack Shalom discussed these thorny issues, plus moments of no laughing matter satire, with two of these comics, Ahmad Ahmad and Maz Jobrani, and director Nick Scowns, Too Soon, comedy after 9-11, and what is it like, not just confronted by cancel culture, but as an Arab American having the police showing up at your door after being reported by an audience member after telling a joke on stage. All of that will be revealed coming up on Arts Express. But first, eminent singer-songwriter Paul Anka is a guest on our show this week and the son of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants and creator and performer of hit songs like Diana, Lonely Boy, and Put Your Head on My Shoulder Through the Decades, along with songs for Frank Sinatra and Tom Jones, talks about, for instance, sneaking backstage as a youth into the dressing room of Fats Domino and Chuck Berry following their concert to tell them he's a musician too. And after a somewhat amused Berry told him to sing something while he packed up his guitar, and Anka sang Diana, Chuck Berry told him, it's the worst song I ever heard. Anka also spoke of his memories writing songs with Michael Jackson and his latest album collaborating with Olivia Newton-John and upcoming national tour. But first, we'll hear a little of the song that listeners may not be as familiar with, Anka wrote for and sung by the late music legend Sammy Davis Jr. and at the height of the civil rights movement and black pride back then. I'm not anyone. And then Paul Anka. Anyone, no, not just anyone, I have the right to lead a life fulfilled with every need. I'm not any man designed to fit someone's plan I have my own desires all the things a man aspires no I'll not be used misled deceived or abused no sir not me I do 
I don't I will I won't Hello Hello Paul Aka and welcome to our show well, Good morning to you Now as a teenager aspiring to be a performer I heard you once snuck into a dressing room backstage where Fat Stomino and Chuck Berry were, and you sang for them. Please talk about that unusual experience. Well, back in the 50s and raised in Ottawa, Canada, uh, I was a fan of music. Uh, you know, I listened to the eclectic array of things, but I was pretty much enjoying the, the black experience, which back then was not like it is today because it was kind of segregated in the sense of you know, where they got played, when they got played, but I was very influenced by it. And back then, in the 50s and even into the 60s, all that you had in terms of content of touring, um, they would take the top 15, let's say, and ultimately they'd pay you two or three hundred bucks and throw you on a show and you'd unload down on a bus. You'd go to every major city in Canada and the U.S. And, and I was a fan, and this show showed up, and it had Chuck Berry, and it had Fats Domino and a bunch of other acts, and I bought this new jacket, frankly, with white sleeves on it, and my goal was to get backstage, because I knew the arena, we used to play hockey there, and uh, get this jacket signed. Anyway, I get back there after the show, and I wound up in uh, in uh, Chuck Berry's dressing room, and he's packing up his guitar, and you know, well, all those guys were older than I was, so to see a kid walk mm -hmm. in, they were somewhat abused. And I said, son, my jacket, which he did. And I said, because I'm a singer, I'm a songwriter. I got this song called Diana, and I'm really excited. And I started asking him questions. Mm -hmm. So he said, let me hear it. So I played it for him. And he said, it's the worst song I ever heard. Go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So I wasn't dissuaded in any way. I just buckled up and got stronger from it. But, you know, fade out, fade in the following year. After I got to New York, got it made, I found myself uh, on one of these shows in September. And he was on the show, and I went over to him. And, hey, Mr. Barry, it's Paul Anker from Canada. My song, we're number one now. He looked at me, just couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and you co-wrote songs with Michael Jackson. What are your memories of those creative experiences and your memories of him? Well, Michael's you know, contribution and the memories a lot different than I had with the others that I was writing. Uh, I'd known him all his life with his family, and they would come to see me at Caesar's Palace. And I watched him grow, and it, it came to, you know, one week when I was finishing an album for Sony in the 80s, and he wanted to be on the album with Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. And there was a whole group of guys that I, I had loved writing with. But writing with Michael was totally different from them, and they're all very talented people in that he all of a sudden he had grown into this different phase of his life, and it was just pre-thriller, I think, that was coming out. And he stayed at my house with me up in Carmel, where I lived, and uh, we spent quite a few weeks writing. But, you know, he, he, he didn't really write at a piano or an instrument. He had this amazing vocal instrument where he ooh-ahed, and he sang all these little licks, you know, from just his voice. And that was a different experience for me, but we really clicked in writing. So we wrote, wrote some songs, and, you know, one thing led to another where he had taken the tapes out of the studio and it became somewhat of a legal issue. And they just laid around, and he had copied them, and years later, what came out with, you know, after his death, unfortunately, they had found these bunch of songs that they thought he wrote, but, in fact, had written them with him. So one thing led to another, we straightened it all out, and then we had the first hit, This Is It, and then Love Never Felt So Good, and then I finished the third one with Drake on a Scorpion album, uh, It Don't Matter to Me. But it was different writing with mm. Michael. He was a, a sponge, very much, you know, cared about every day of existence in the industry, and he just wanted to be the king of it all, and ultimately we could never lose sight of the fact of his contribution, which... I think has inspired many of the new kids today. And when Paul Anka looks in the mirror, what does he see? And looking back on your very prolific life in music. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, you, um, you look in the mirror at certain junctures in your career, then you get 
to a certain point where you don't look as much. Uh, because when you've kind of found your foundation and you found your audience and they found you, you're pretty much um, working toward just what is the next thing that I'm going to do. Mm. That was my 80th birthday recently. I'm yeah. taking a look at everything. You're, you're humbled by it. You, you just can't. You know, in an industry that's up and down and a lot of people don't survive it, you just continue to be marveled at the fact that you can still, you know, be relevant. You know, yeah. you're working with Buble, you got Bocelli, or you're writing, you have albums out, I'm still performing, you know, my tour starts in October and goes to June because people are there and they show up and they want to see it. So you're kind of, you know, I don't know if it's marveled at the fact, you're more appreciative of the fact that You've been doing something right. You you start to look in terms of well, it used to be I've got sixty years in front of me, and then all of a sudden you got sixty years behind you. So you're maybe looking at three year increments as to how long you want to stay along, and it's really predicated on health mm-hmm. for all of us. And uh, that's pretty much it. I don't think my goals were as in abundance as they were years ago. Um, I'm going to finish this documentary that we're doing on my life with this uh, film company and you know after that it's your family it's uh, a bunch of things that really matter and whatever falls in place in terms of your career which is kind of a, a two-pronged situation the creative person the writer and then the performing which I love I mean it comes very easy and it's only there because you know your fans support you and they show up and that enthusiasm induces you to continue doing that but there's no, there's no more mirrors other than realizing you, you don't look the same, you don't feel the same, but you're still healthy and functioning, you know. What was the inspiration for you creatively and personally for your new album, Making Memories, and what led you to your teaming up with Olivia Newton-John for that collaboration? You know, in uh, Making Memories, you know, I had, I had no di- idea it was in the pipeline, and Actually, when COVID changed all our lives, unfortunately, mm. uh, I found with a lot of time, um, I went to what I've known all my life, and that was writing. And I started writing, and uh, by the mere nature of the fact that I wasn't leaving the house and stuck in my studio, I started writing unusually in this way. And when I finished, months and months and months later, I had a lot of songs, and uh, I just got a hold of the record company and I said, you know, I've got, got a lot of songs and I, I think it's going to be an interesting album. And what culminated out of it all was, in the interim, was TikTok. And, you know, TikTok was Shoulder, which I never expected. I didn't even know what it was, frankly. And all of a sudden I had Shoulder taking off and a new demographic and I had to do a new version to put it on the album. And one thing led to another. And fortunate enough to get Olivia, Olivia and John, and uh, she did a great job. She's a great artist and just a courageous woman of everything she's going through. So I, I had that. I, I had to do my way because of the anniversary year and the birthday and didn't want to do it on my own. And one thing led to another and called Michael Buble, who I was a part of in the beginning of his first album. We've remained friends and he's a great artist. And he came on board and then Buccelli, you know, the great voice on the planet, knowing him and his wife, spending time with him in Italy a couple of years ago, uh, had my way done, and then all the new stuff. Mm. And it was very eclectic. You know, I just wrote on what I observed and what I was feeling, and uh, it really looked good. And it sounded good to me in terms of the diversity of it. Mm. Got a hold of the record company, and they said, yeah, we're we're into it, let's do it. Mm. So it was kind of cool, you know, coming out of the COVID situation, not out of it now, obviously. Yeah. But being able to write and you know put your feelings down, so it was pretty much that kind of a journey. And what can people anticipate with your tour, Anka Sings Sinatra, and what you'll be up to? The uh, Anka Sings Sinatra tour, it was a deviation of, you know, going out, you know, all the years and pretty much doing some hits I've written for others. And trying to keep that genre alive, I got involved with Buble because he certainly represented all of that, and I liked all that in terms of keeping, you know, Dean Martin, let's not forget him, Sammy Davis, all the guys that really laid down the great foundation. So I said, let me do some Sinatra stuff because I ultimately had to do some anyway for the things I've written from you know, my way and let me try again and so on. 
and it's a portion of the show that I do, along with the written for myself and for others. She's a lady, Tom Jones, and mm. just all of that stuff. So it become it became a, a cornerstone of, of the evening. And when we tested it and did it uh, a year and a half ago, it was very successful. Mm. Uh, we've kind of kept it on a good portion of the days. That, you know, we start in New York on October, I think, 22nd. We go right through November and start again in February and uh, just go right through June with, it, with the Sinatra concept. Okay. Thank you so much, Paul, for calling into the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. information about Paul Anka's new album and concert tour dates are online at paulanka.com. And now on Arts Express. My first day of work at Saturday Night Live was supposed to be on September 11th, uh, 2001. Everything changed in that moment, but it was hard to know what the repercussions would be. How do you make a joke ever again now? A comedian's natural response is to try to find humor, even in the darkest of situations. If American Airlines were smart, their slogan would be, American Airlines, first through the towers. I didn't want to go to war, because, you know, uh, I got the selfish reasons. I'm, I'm originally from Iran, and, and Iran sounds a lot like Iraq. And I was worried that if there was one president who was going to mess it up and bomb the wrong country. It's 20 years on for some people. It's still now too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> How? How about that? <laughs> I, I, the name of this documentary? Time plus tragedy equals comedy. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. 20 years ago this month, two airplanes crashed into the World Trade Center on 9-11, and the world since has never been the same. In the face of immediate tragedy and loss and public mourning, how does a society know when it's okay to return to normal interactions, to smile and laugh again? And especially if you're a professional comedian, how do you know when it's no longer too soon? I'm happy to be talking with the director of Too Soon, a film about the aftermath of 9-11 and its impact on not only what we may say, but when we may say it. I'm glad to welcome director Nick Scown, and as a special treat, we have two comedians featured in the film, Maz Jabrani and Ahmed Ahmed. Hi, Nick. Hey, Jack. How are you? And hi, Maz. Hi, Jack. And hi, Ahmed. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having us on your show. You're quite welcome. We're all in different places right now, but feel free to jump in as you like. Nick, tell us what you set out to do with this film. My co-director and I, Julie Sebaugh, started kind of with the idea of tragedy plus time equals comedy and 9-11 being the kind of ultimate example of that where comedy clubs closed and talk shows went off the air and the media was reporting that irony is dead. And it really did fill in some ways like, what are we going to talk about? Can we joke about anything ever again? And so that kind of started the process. And, and as we interviewed people like uh, Ahmed and Maz, we started to see this other pattern of 
the healing power of comedy of how talking about what was happening in the world or what we were feeling, the emotions, whether it was anger or fear, that it became part of the healing process, almost like a group therapy session. And so as we were interviewing everyone, that really became the focus of the story we were telling. And how did you get involved with it? Why did you want to make it? I had, uh, funny enough, been traveling to New York at the end of September 2001 to look at film schools. And uh, I didn't actually visit any of the film schools. I just kind of hung out with my friends and saw what they were dealing with. And on my uh, train trip back to the airport, I didn't realize that the subway stations were closed at uh, ground zero. So you had to get off the train and walk through the area to the other mm-hmm. side. And so uh, mm-hmm. just seeing those images and I, I took some still photos that are that are now in the film that just kind of really stuck with me. So it was a, a memory I'll never forget. And what sort of clinched everything is when I got home, the Onion's 9-11 issue came out and it was the first time that I had laughed. <laughs> Laughing, I'm crying as I'm reading it. And it was just such a cathartic moment that when I told the idea to to Julie Seba, my partner, she said, oh, I had the same, I have the hard copy. I, I took it with me everywhere I moved. And it was just a a moment for us that really mattered. And so it, it felt like something worth investigating that power of, of comedy to, to help us. The amazing thing is that some comedians were actually first responders on 9-11. Some actually worked in the area in their day jobs. So what was it like for them? Yeah, uh, Mark DeMeo was a police officer at the time who was moonlighting at in, the, in his evenings as a stand-up. And so he says the night before he was he was doing a showcase and it went really well and he was getting people's cards. And then the next morning he wakes up and hears Howard Stern talking about a plane has hit the building and it was um, you know kind of time to go to work. So he ended up going down there, helping to clear the area, helping to kind of tag the evidence and the remains that were found. And so for him, it became a, you know, it was obviously a, a trying period. And he ended up doing a one-man show about his experience and huh. uh, performing. And and so, yeah, he was, he's kind of a good representative of someone who was there firsthand dealing with, dealing with this tragedy and found a way to keep going. And for himself, humor being a, like a, a bomb to help him in that time. Some comedians in 2001 had to overcome not just the perception of insensitivity, but also the fact that they were from Middle Eastern ancestry. Maz Jabrani and Ahmed Ahmed, you both came to the U.S. when you were very young, Maz from Iran and Ahmed from Egypt. What were your first impressions in terms of how this would affect the Muslim and Arab communities? Was it immediately apparent to you that there would be anti-Muslim and Arab backlash? This is Ahmed here. I've always felt that being, you know, from the Middle East, Egyptian, you know, raised Muslim with the name Ahmed twice. So I've always had this underlying, you know, resentment and racism and Islamophobia. And then when 9-11 happened, it was just, it was like on steroids. And it became a lot more intense, a lot more microscopic. The only, I guess, cushion that we had was, you know, Maz and I, started at the world famous comedy store we didn't start there but we got our chops there i was a regular performer there for 16 years mitzi shore had passed me and right before that you know maz was a paid regular and another comic named Aaron cater and she started a show called the arabian nights she was kind of i guess prepping us for these like intuitions and she had these kind of prophecies that there was going to be a war between America and the Middle East, and that when this happened, your people are going to be very misrepresented. And she basically said, you know, it's going to be up to you guys to break down those stereotypes. And at the time, this was like 99 is when I got past there, November 1999. You know, she started talking all this, at the time, what we thought was crazy stuff. And then and she would always, you know, regularly bring it up. At one point, it got very close to 9-11 and I was sitting with her one day and she said I remember her saying get ready it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and I kept on saying what and then two days later 9-11 happened and it was weird because it get, it just gave me chills up my spine that this woman who is you know arguably considered the biggest comedy guru oracle mentor in the world had like a vision and a mission for Middle Eastern Muslim Iranian comics of brown color to come out. Mitzi Shore was very insistent that we went on a stage right after and got up and start talking about who we are. 
And I said, I don't even know what to say or do. She said, you'll figure it out. And I went up on stage the Friday after 9-11. She opened up the comedy store. There were about 30 people in the audience. It was very scattered and quiet and somber. And I went up first. And I remember that the first thing out of my mouth was, hey, guys, my name is Ahmed Ahmed. And I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) And that that got a chuckle. And then I just kind of like, you know, that little bead of sweat that was coming down my forehead I kind of just rubbed it away and then I went into the next joke. You know, when I when I get on an airplane, all my food comes pre-cut. I have to arrive to the airport a day and a half early. Uh, I show up to the airport in a G-string just to make it easier for taste. Like just stupid little, you know, kind of what you would consider kind of hacky jokes. No one was saying it. I had the room and the, the lane to say it. And little by little, myself and the rest of the guys just started building on that. And and Maz, what about you? How how did it go for you? It went great. No, <laughs> uh, you know Ahmed and I w- would talk about this a lot because I came to America in 1978, late 78, and I came from Iran to America, and then quickly the hostage crisis happened. So I already had started experiencing it as a kid, where they would call us F and Iranian, and they would bully us. And I remember Ahmed even saying that it called him F and Iranian. I mean, I think anybody who was Middle Eastern or Arab was being called an F and Iranian back then. We were experiencing a lot of this stuff before September 11th. And it was just a continuous drumming of you guys are terrorists, you guys are hostage takers, etc, etc. I didn't start stand up comedy until I was in uh, 1998 is when I started stand up comedy. And when I first started stand up comedy, I had jokes that would talk about growing up Iranian in America. So, you know, one of the jokes I had was I said it was hard growing up Iranian in America because my friends, the parents wouldn't let us have a sleepover because they were afraid they were going to keep their kids and take them hostage. So (laughs) silly stuff like that. Right. And so this was pre 9-11. And then as Ahmed said, when Mitzi Shore put us together for the Arabian Nights, again, I credit Ahmed with. Um, talking me, uh, you know, I called him up. I said, Ahmed, she wants to do this Arabian night show, which is just a- any comedian that's Middle Eastern. And by, at that point, there was like three of us. So she added like another friend of ours, Sam Tripoli, who's half Armenian. There was a white girl who knew how to belly dance. This is all pre-September 11th. So when September 11th happened, we were yeah. already doing material based on our background. And I think quickly we all realized that our job was also to call out the hypocrisy of what was happening. So, for example, the fact that the Bush administration took the attack and turned it into an attack on Iraq to go to war, a lot of our jokes started going in that direction. The funny thing is, is, you know, here we are 20 years later and that Islamophobia still exists, sometimes uh-huh. even more intense than than before I was in uh, Naples, Florida, back in 2019, and an audience member called 911 on me over a joke that I told. Oh my God. And the cops showed up the next day to interview me. And it ended up going on Twitter and it made global news and somebody made a cartoon about it. And it and the, the joke was, hey, any, I've been doing this joke for years. I was, hey, any Middle, any Middle, uh-huh. Middle Eastern people in the audience? Typically, a few people clap. I said, that's great. There's a small group of us, but hey, it only takes one of us. <laughs> and, and it gets an awkward chuckle, just like you guys do. And then I say to tell a joke, it only takes one of us. And then I go, but seriously, lock the doors. So, <laughs> so but the funny uh, thing uh, is, is, the joke is, you know, terrorists don't wear skinny jeans. <laughs> Ter- <laughs> terrorists, I do meet and greets after my shows. Terrorists don't do meet and greets. Yeah. <laughs> terrorists don't smoke marijuana i smoke marijuana maybe they should have terrorists smoke marijuana you'll kill terrorism they'll be too high to do anything <laughs> the film makes a very interesting point that perhaps for the first time in the u.s political lines were drawn among stand-up comedians could nick maybe you could talk a bit about that because you you had a section in the film about that that was the, i think it was um Maybe Dean Obadala, who was also part of the Axis of Evil tour, uh, mm-hmm. talking about it, and Mark Marin talking about it, because you know generally, I mean, Ahmed and Mazel can speak more to this, but you know generally comics don't say what other comics should or shouldn't joke about. But Dean, there was a comic who was doing a joke that said, 
be a patriot punch a cab driver in the head. And Dean told him like, yo man, like you say whatever joke you want, but you're inciting people to violence. And at the time people were getting killed for being Muslim or even just being suspected of of Muslim, even if they weren't, Mm -hmm. but people thought they were. And so that was not, it's not something that you usually find in the back of a comedy club. But in this case, there was a lot of comics who had to take a stand and and in a sense, there was also kind of a rise of right-wing comics too, right? I mean, Dennis Miller starts becoming very political and uh, in a way that he hadn't before, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, I was I was a Dennis Miller fan, you know, growing up. Uh, he was one of my <laughs> my favorite comics uh, for stand-up and on Weekend Update. And so it was interesting to see someone you think of as a smart, uh, thoughtful person taking the fear of the attacks and just going in a... a direction you did not see coming and i had a comedian ask me if i if i knew anybody in isis oh my god that was me i asked i asked (laughs) i had this comedian i won't i won't mention his name but at one point he he said you know anybody in isis and i i thought you know i I laughed i said yeah it's really funny he goes no man i'm serious i said you know i grew up in riverside california right (laughs) he's like i don't know man everybody knows somebody i'm like that's like if i asked you if you knew anybody in the kkk but then he was like, well, my uncle used to work out with this guy. <laughs> well, is it professionally dangerous to cross the too soon line since the movie is called Too Soon? Who, who got burnt because of Too Soon? Well, there's definitely, you know, Gilbert uh, Godfrey, obviously, <laughs> is someone who is always willing to kind of, to I don't know, if, if cross the line or jump over it or gleefully, <laughs> gleefully you know. <laughs> is he a complete maniac? Is he, is... <laughs> he? You know, the funny thing is, is when you meet him in person, he's just such a nice, humble, sweet man uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. that, but he just, he really, for him, he, he wants to call out the elephant in the room. He doesn't want to pretend that things are fine and nothing happened. He wants to be the one who points out what the, the thing that nobody wants to say. And so He's lost jobs because of that. I mean, people you wouldn't necessarily even think of, like Daryl Hammond in the film. He, you know, tried to do impressions of George W. Bush, and the audiences were not having it, and they would cancel shows, and they, he basically lost all that work, just went away because they're like, no, no, you can't make fun of a president during wartime. Uh-huh. And Bill Maher, obviously, he he lost his show politically incorrect for for something that uh, in the film Al Jean of the Simpsons says, you know, he just, he was stating a fact. He wasn't even, it wasn't even necessarily a joke. It was just a, a fact. He lost his show because of it. So I'm sorry, just real quick, just to coattail that. It's funny that his show was called politically incorrect. What he had said was that the, the pilots were brave, not, not saying that he approved it, but he said it takes some, Amount yeah. of guts to do that. So and he was cancel a show called Politically Incorrect was just yeah yeah. yeah. Is comedy inherently risky? I mean, the, the com- comedians I most revere, and I think a lot of people revere, are those who say what others are thinking but don't say. And a comedian is, in some sense, the unfiltered it of the audience. And hopefully, there's humor in that. How risky can you get? Comedy is one of the like riskiest jobs in the world. You know, I would compare it to like race car driving or, (laughs) you know, it's like there really is no safety net with stand-up comedy. As an actor, you know, you can do a, you know, retake of a scene. Musicians can start over. Painter can throw away what they painted and bring out a new blank canvas. With stand-up, once you go on stage, if you're not getting the audience, it's really hard to get them back. So there's a risk there. But then you have an you know American society lately where you have the the woke and cancel culture, uh-huh. which has become a recent thing. So comedy is definitely has a microscope on it. I think that you if you punch up and generally you are safe. I think it's our job to expose hypocrisy. And again, I'll I'll say under the Trump administration, even though he was the president, and I would punch up, I still got a lot of pushback. There were people that would scream at me. People got offended, but I felt fine because I was punching up. I wasn't punching down. When you say punching down, you mean making a joke about someone with less power? Someone with less power, someone with, let's say, a physical handicap or someone who's uh, economically lower. You know, you, you don't mm-hmm. want to make fun of people who, who are you know, struggling already in those ways. I think if you punch up, it, you're safe. 
I also think that you live and die by the laughs, meaning you might say, like Ahmed was just saying right now, we are living in this world where people are sensitive and you do get people being canceled for certain things. But my response a lot of times to my comedian friends and myself is I go, okay, you know what? Tell the joke to the audience. If they laugh, you're doing great. Keep going. You're living and dying by the laughs. If they don't laugh, then you know that, you know, maybe using the a certain word that's no longer accepted is not going to be accepted. So that's kind of the, the tightrope we have to walk as comedians. And it's changing fast. Again, as mm. I just said, with this new culture, the new generation, there are jokes that we could have done 10 years ago that we just can't anymore. But I find that as an opportunity to, to grow and try and stay relevant by finding other ways of saying what I still think is funny. What's too soon now? Can we make Afghanistan jokes? Yeah, there are comics already out there doing it. It's about who you're making fun of. I mean, you you know, you know, if you are making fun of the people trying to get out of Afghanistan who have been victimized by the recent situation, then you are a jerk. And hopefully the audience won't laugh at those jokes and mm -hmm. you will stop doing those jokes. But if you're making fun of the the way the pullout was done and making fun of, let's say, Biden in that sense, or you're making fun of the Trump administration for the negotiation that they did with the Taliban, or you're making fun of the Taliban. That's all fair game. Go for it. I was thinking there are a number of jokes whose punchline is too soon. Any Anyone got one? Uh, one that pops into mind that maybe is arable is okay. um, Seth MacFarlane when he was uh, hosting the Oscars. It was the year that Lincoln was nominated and he made, you know, uh, uh, an assassination joke and the audience groaned and he was like too soon still it's been like 120 years it's still too soon that, that was one that, uh, that that got me well thanks so much nick maz and ahmed i've been talking with director nick scown and comedians ahmed ahmed and maz jabrani about the new film too soon it's a thoughtful and funny film not only about what's funny but when's funny this is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Too soon can be seen on Vice TV. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> and coming up next on Arts Express, as summer draws to a close, or does it, with global warming and this seemingly endless summer and endless hurricanes, here's somewhat relevant music, Vivaldi's Summer Storm described as a musical fury arranged for a pipe organ with no less than four vertical keyboards and multiple massive organ pipes reaching to the top of the tall ceiling at the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester, England.
And thank you, Jonathan Scott, for that mighty organ performance. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Euro Cultural Beat, referencing author Rebecca West's Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, prophetic 1941, tragic scrutiny of the now disappeared Yugoslavia. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro ventured in the present time beneath the surface of Croatia where lie unresolved historical tensions which, quote, threaten to make of this land a further breeding ground for a new fascism. With connections to tribalism and Western capitalist exploitation, tourism, Game of Thrones, and a fifth Indiana Jones, Rossellini, the Fourth Crusade, the Nazi invasion, and a French saloon keeper in the Balkans. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Red Lamb, Black Falcon, the Balkanization of the Balkans and the capitalization of Croatia. It is today one of the jewels of global tourism. The Dalmatian coast of the still newly formed country of Croatia is back again with tourist figures this summer starting to attain pre-COVID levels in a paradise that boasts the gleaming turquoise waters of the Adriatic, the medieval walls of Dubrovnik and Zadar, the Roman ruins of Split, Beneath the surface grandeur, though, lie unresolved historical and contemporary tensions which threaten to intrude upon the spectacle and make of this land a further breeding ground for a new fascism, linked to a global Trumpist far right, or alternately, or at the same time, a further experiment in red-green socialist ecologist coalition, which may yet counter this wave both in Croatia and throughout Europe. Rebecca West's monumental reckoning and sophisticated exploration of these tensions in what was then Yugoslavia in the time leading up to World War II is titled Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, with the lamb being the primarily Serbian sacrificial lamb that she hoped would not be devoured by the ominous falcon, a Croatian symbol, but one that in her time she feared was simply an emissary of the Italian fascist Mussolini. Today, the budding red-green lamb of Serbo-Croatian progressive unity is in danger of being swooped in on by these fascist remnants. Both, however, are also subsumed and subservient to a global capitalist takeover with Western European money, especially prominent in the real estate development of the Dalmatian coast, and with signs that American and Anglo money is on the way. That money, as we have seen in the U.S. and Brazil, is not above enlisting the specter of the Black Falcon to crush the Red Lamb if its profit motive ends are threatened. In West time, Balkans, as she relates, was synonymous with craziness. She tells the story of a French female saloon keeper running out in the street after a Slav had shot up the mirror in her establishment, screaming, Balkans, Balkans. In Westview, the vaunted craziness is in fact a rational reaction to a land dominated in successive ways of exploitation by the Greeks, the Romans, the Germanic Huns, the Central Asian Avars, the Mongols, the Turks, the subsequent empires of Venice, France, England, Austro-Hungary, and finally, the Vatican, the Italian fascists, and the Nazis. But the contemporary phrase that applies to the area is Balkanization, with socialist Yugoslavia, the term itself meaning Kingdom of the South Slavs, broken up, with the aid of U.S. and NATO instigation and intervention, into six countries, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Slovenia, Macedonia, and the Imperial Protectorate of Kosovo. This division serves as a regressive example of tribalism and ethnic cleansing, which makes each of the countries fairer game and less able to resist the massive infusion of Western investment capital that followed the breakup. It was also the blueprint which the U.S. then, aping the Britain of the 19th century, applied to the Middle East in what West terms, using the earlier Roman phrase, divide et empera, divide and conquer. The Croatian view of the breakup is that after the death of the partisan socialist Tito, who was Croatian, and the fall of the Soviet Union, the Serbs, who controlled the major military assets of the country, attacked and conquered a third of the Dalmatian coast, wanting access to the sea. The Serb counterclaim is that they were protecting Serbs in Croatia. With a massive influx of military aid, heavily from the U.S., the Croats then repulsed the Serbs, and on August 4, 1995, announced the formation of the new country. The major tourist center Dubrovnik, 
whose walls are already notorious as a stand-in for King's Landing, the major set piece on Game of Thrones, was visited this summer by Harrison Ford after finishing shooting a fifth Indiana Jones and by Queen drummer Roger Taylor. A current Croatian novel, Red Water, by longtime journalist and observer of the area, Jerika Pavisic, details how Irish developers enlist a former police inspector to become their agent to buy up land to turn into timeshare apartments, with the cop, for all his trouble, only offered a timeshare in the complex in the fall off-season. The Croats themselves describe these changes as a massive privatization as they watch their own land being bought out from under them. The three central poles of life in Croatia are family, sport, and the Catholic religion. On a bus coming back from Split up the coast to Zadar, the driver, who had a patriarchal air about him, had hung over the rearview mirror a pendant of the local soccer team, Hajuk, and a wooden rosary, thus combining all three. Religion is practiced in both a tender, touching, and more mystical form than Western symbolic or metaphoric versions, with the worshipers in St. Simeon's Church of Zadar filing past the tomb of the saint after Sunday Mass to touch it to reaffirm their faith. But the church has also been divisive. As West points out, it sponsored uniform fascist youth movements in the 30s as a spearhead for a possible Mussolini invasion, and in general has promoted division between the Catholic Croats and Christian Orthodox Serbs, where, as West says, there is no difference except their religion. The region is now largely broken into its individual ethnic components. Croatia, at the time of the last census, was 90% Croatian, with only 4% Serbs, and with Croatia having been the site of two ethnic cleansings. The first, under the native Ustas fascists, after the Nazis invaded, carried out against Jews, Gypsies, and Serbs, and the second, in the wake of the 95 victory, perpetuated against the Serbs. Practically all that is left of a once-thriving Jewish section in the center of Split is a blown-up, colorized photo of former Jewish shops and street life attached to the double doors of one of the houses. The family, religion, sport, cocktail is, of course, fertile breeding ground for a new fascism. And this summer, along with Harrison Ford, Eastern Europe was also graced with an appearance by Fox's Tucker Carlson, the wealthy sire to a fortune, whose fractured anti-truth-telling continues the tradition of his father, a director of the U.S. propaganda outlet Voice of America. Carlson interviewed the illiberal head of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who is sponsoring a far-right global institute, not a think, but rather an anti-thought tank and who, though limiting rights of a free press and in that way illiberal, is an extreme proponent of the unbridled rights of capital and in that way neoliberal. Carlson's show featured a helicopter tour of Orban's fence to keep out immigrants and promoted this diversion as a corporate far-right way of preoccupying the citizens of Eastern Europe, many destitute after being ravaged by Western European capital. In Croatia, the remnants of the still quite active Ustas movement are today's Trumpist anti-vaxxers who refuse the required masks and buses, the main source of public transport. Orban's far-right frenzy, though, is partly a reaction to a rising progressive movement in the Balkans, with the mayor of Croatia's largest city, Zagreb, a socialist environmentalist, part of a red-green coalition, come to power in the wake of a huge student movement against the wave of austerity in the wake of the 2008 Great Recession, and a new positive reflection on the Yugoslav socialist period, termed Yugo-nostalgia. There is still much enmity to overcome as a Croatian movement contesting real estate developers in Zagreb and attempting to link with a comparable Serbian movement over the question of the Serbian capital being emptied of its native population and turned into a luxury center on the Danube is named Let's Not Drown Belgrade. The Dalmatian coast, though, has a long history of domination and resistance, and in particular with that of the Venetian Empire. As the Venetians were beginning to assemble the ships that would allow them to become the primary force in the Mediterranean, they realized they did not have enough wood for shipbuilding. So they crossed the Adriatic, which they later referred to as the Venice Canal, and deforested many of the Dalmatian islands, which are still today simply composed of shrubs. The ships built in the Venetian arsenal, were then used to attempt to enforce Venetian rule on the coast, including forbidding Croatian shipbuilding and taxing Croatian salt, a plentiful product of the islands that in effect kept the people on the coast from exporting their fishing catch, which they used salt to preserve. When the cities revolted, as did Zibenik, whose medieval streets still stand, the Venetian ships, ironically built from Dalmatian wood, appeared in the harbor and attempted to bombard them into submission. 
The city-states resisted, and some of them, in particular Dubrovnik, remained independent. In Zadar and the St. Francis Monastery, named after the Italian saint who renounced his wealth and worked for the poor, and who is supposed to have visited there, you will find a painted crucifix in the room next to the sacristy, where the city in the 14th century was ceded to Venice. In the Fourth Crusade, the crucifix was taken to the city walls and brandished in front of the Venetian and other Western troops as a sign that the city was Christian. That did not halt the bloodthirsty crusaders, who then pillaged the city anyway in a crusade led by Venice that never reached the Holy Land, but instead ravaged the city's Christian rivals throughout the Mediterranean. As West points out, the continual reshuffling is a difficult history to overcome. But, as one Zagreb activist put it, what unites these now-scattered countries is not their belonging or wanting to belong to the increasingly corporatized structure of the European Union, but rather that, with the influx of Western capital, quote, they all belong to a semi-dominated periphery. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.